Hey, this week we talk the breakup of Bradley Cooper's marriage, which absolutely everyone saw coming. And then we talk about Tracy Morgan's car accident and a $2 million Bugatti, which he obviously didn't see coming. Then I tell the story of Charles Lindbergh, aka Lucky Lindy, and Steph tells the story of Gone Too Soon, Michael Hutchins. If you like drama, you've come to the right place, so stay tuned on this week's Drama Club. What up, fam? Feels good, right? Good, right? <laughs> yeah, I know it, dude. Yeah. I know it, dude. And without further ado, we broadcast live from CA to When I sent you the intro yesterday, I was like, what's a cool intro? And I thought of all that, obviously. Mm-hmm. So I was watching the thing and I was like, man, could I come up with a rap like this? Hello, it's just an introduction to Overpower Man. The show is all about hey. Yes, you do it all the time. I was like, man, I dude, do one the, for Drama Club. But all that intro, oh, the, their theme music did not have to go as hard as it did, but it did. But, right? <laughs> they right? did that. Shout out to Lisa. R.I.P. I know. Damn. We don't have that. That's not a thing anymore. Like, real artists doing theme music specifically for shows, you know? Or. Or just theme music in general, like themes to shows are super quick now. Yeah. Like it's just like one word or like two little, you know. I've always been partial to the ones that tell the whole story, like like the nanny. She was looking for a bridal shop and glossy tweeds and then a boyfriend kicked her out in one of those crushing scenes. Like I want to know the whole story (laughs) in like two seconds. Saved by the bell? Uh, when you wake up in the morning (laughs) that's more of that's more just the vibe that you need to get from that show though like but what we need is like a actual story we need like the sopranos to have like the whole story it needs to be like (laughs) mad men mad men that one has a story too though (laughs) well first his name was something and then he went to war and now he goes by dawn and he's a dick (laughs) and he has a big dick that wasn't on the show though well it was implied i that's true though i was watching music videos right now to pass the time and oh hell yeah it got on ariana grande's break up with your boyfriend and then hoel walked in and he was like what is she saying break up with your boyfriend because she's bored that's so (laughs) rude And then he was singing it like right after. That song fucking goes. Yeah, it is rude, but it's cute. It's <laughs> well, that only thing that was really going on too was that the Brad, the Bradley, and how the hell do you say her name? Irinia. I don't know her name. Okay, Bradley Cooper and his girl. There's been a breakup rumors for a while, which for the longest time we thought was because of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Because they're trying to push Gaga and Bradley kind of like right. in the public, but. I don't know, Anti Lawyer and Us Weekly, which I don't trust, was saying mm-hmm. that she's moving out. Yeah. I'm not surprised. The obligations to that movie are over, you know, because you, you have to do like all the, the press, press and, like the... and the red carpets and the award show circuits. Right. I could see like if they were maybe close to broken up before that or during or whatever, you know, you do what you got to do. It's right, 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 right. The business of show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, if, I, I I don't know if this is speculation. Yes, it is speculation, but the rumors are that he's gay. Yeah, I never heard that before. Where have you heard that? NT says it all the time. I've heard, I, I know people who are like, uh, I've slept with Bradley Cooper. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
And then also just apropos of nothing, this <laughs> randomly the other day, Jazzy texted me, Bradley Cooper is gay. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, how do you know that? And then she was like, I know a guy who told me that he slept with him. Oh, wow. So like, it's just one of those pervasive rumors. That's interesting. I had literally never heard that before. You remember Bradley Cooper and Sex in the City? I just saw this thing that was like all the mm-hmm. people before they Sex were stars. The yeah, like Justin yeah. Theroux. Bradley Cooper was also on Sean Penn's Inside the Actor Studio. He was in the audience. He asked a question. No way. Uh, Bradley Cooper, third year drama student. Huh. like whatever it was really it was pretty good he basically told him he asked him something like uh like how do i get to where you are or something like that it was kind of cute actually oh that is cute i just saw that it's the 10th year anniversary of the hangover which god mm. that doesn't feel that old yeah i don't like those movies the first I've one only, is all right i've only seen the first one i've never seen the other ones but they definitely beat that shit too yeah <laughs> yeah Bradley Cooper, though, he's, I mean, I don't care for him as an actor. He's there's, fine. There's he's not, n- like, anything. And he's not in, like, movies that I'm particularly interested in. I think that that's it. I've never been, like, gotta go see that Bradley Cooper movie. The one that I remember kind of thinking, like, okay, this could be his thing was that one with the pill, remember? Oh, it was, like, it made you smarter, better, faster, stronger. So. Yeah, for, like, 24 hours or something. Uh-huh. That uh, that was cool. And I was, like, okay, that's because that seems more like Matt Damon's type of vibe. Oh, sure. And I was, like, maybe that'll be his niche. He's going to try to get into that kind of niche. But then, yeah. nah. Then he was America's sniper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking hate that movie. I, I'm never going to watch that movie. <laughs> I watched, like, half of it and then, like, fell asleep. I was so fucking mad the whole time. Anything that gives like a 55-year-old Republican dad a boner, I will never watch that shit. (laughs) (laughs) Never say never. I bet you have very similar pornography taste as a 55-year-old Republican man. Yeah, actually, maybe. (laughs) Yeah. They're going to act like they don't, but we all know. We all know the truth. Did you see the, the Tracy Morgan thing with his brand new car? I saw that he got into like a car accident. Okay. Kind of. So I mean, it was the best. after his actual car accident, you can, right. nothing else will ever be called a car accident for him. Yeah, exactly. He got into a minor fender bender. This one's funny because my dad my dad gave me the tea for this one because it's got awesome. Bugattis in it. So That's my dad awesome. was like, oh, yeah, May would be interested in this. So Tracy Morgan just brought bought a brand new $2 million Bugatti. That's fucking unnecessary. <laughs> That's <is> so ridiculous. <laughs> what the hell it's swaggy as fuck though yeah i mean i'm sure i i believe you like if you're okay i don't know that tracy morgan is a car guy though like if you're jerry seinfeld i'd be like yes get this bugatti for sure okay you know he's a known car guy when i was like tracy morgan got the bugatti because there's only you know a handful i would love to see rick rock just trying to get (laughs) impossible impossible so i was like all right tracy morgan bought a bugatti two million dollar car literally 15 minutes later, (gasps) crash that shit. Oh, my God. It it wasn't his fault, though. This Somebody in, like, a Honda Pilot crashed into him. It me. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. It was scary, though. I mean, the crash itself wasn't scary at all. It's just a minor fender bender, but how much is that shit going to cost to repair the Bugatti? Like, fuck. Literally 100 grand, something like that. It's 
very minor. She she sideswiped him, but she sideswiped the the driver's side so he couldn't open the door to get out. Oh so, yeah. So he kind of like half jumped out of the car and started beating on her window and was like, "Bitch, get out the car!" Oh no. Yeah, which is I'm gonna get you pregnant. <laughs> Which I feel like that's kind of scary if somebody did that to me. That's super scary. I would be super fucking scary. But then when I saw it was Tracy Morgan, I'd kind of be oh, like, yeah. oh, uh, that's yeah. Tracy just being crazy. That's Brian Fellow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I might actually still be scared of Tracy, though. Because he's yeah, kind of, he's, he's, he's like, unhinged. Yeah. yeah. But so he was obviously furious. Did you ever see him on Deezus and Meryl? I bet he was furious. No. He was fucking crazy. He was like saying the craziest shit. He said that he let his wife take a poop on a glass table and he laid underneath watching. What? And Deezus and Meryl are just like looking at him like, what the fuck? Dude? <laughs> like, Deezus and Meryl, they're kind of wild. So I, I don't see them being able to wrangle a guest like Tracy. No, you know? they were like, what the hell? Oh my God. I'm, I'm not, I would never do that, but I don't want to judge anyone who's into scat play, but that seems like the way to do it, like with the barrier, right? You don't, <laughs> like I'm nice, not mad safe at, safe barrier. Yes. I'm not mad at scat play when it's, when you got a barrier like that. That seems like, all right, that's weird, but to you, baby. Yeah. And then I, after that, he took her to buy a $2 million Bugatti. I'm mad at it. Y'all are fucking nasty. Don't be doing that shit. Y'all are going to get a fucking infection. And then you guys wonder why you don't get qualified for health insurance. Getting booty in your eye and shit. Diagnosis, booty eye. Booty in the eye. Take two wet wipes and call me in the morning. <laughs> Vaccinate your kids because they might be victims of <laughs> booty eye. <laughs> oh, God. Any excuse we can get in this podcast to tell people to vaccinate their kids, we're going to take true. that shit because this shit is an epidemic. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, and in conclusion, vaccinate your kids. <laughs> uh, oh, I saw this. I saw a tweet today that kind of had me shook. It what? was, it was Marsha Cross. Do you remember her from Desperate Housewives, the redhead? Yeah, she was bomb for. Yeah, she, she was real bomb? bomb. Yeah, she's bomb. Okay. Well, she has anal cancer. What? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> she has anal cancer, and it's... I shouldn't be laughing. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know there's something about it. What fair? Fa- R.I.P. Farrah Fawcett. But like every yeah. time I hear it, I'm like, really? Like yeah. there's there are more, di- and that's part of the problem. That's why anal cancer actually needs a lot of funding, and why people die because there's a lot of stigma around it and stuff. But anyway, right? That sucks. This is a funny story. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> so so she has so she has anal Anal cancer cancer. and it's the same it's caused by the same strain of hpv as her husband's throat cancer what (laughs) yo i mean i'm no fucking mathematician (laughs) that shit do add up though that shit adds up so I saw the the tweet was something like there's a lot of there's a lot of information to process in one headline. Yeah, seriously, her husband has throat cancer too. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that sucks. But are is it is it treatable though? Like throat cancers, I think of literally all the cancers is the most treatable. Is that's what Michael Douglas had, right? Yeah. Uh huh. And that's what also uh, Renee. Um, Celine Dion's husband had too, and he was like oh. good for like a decade or something oh. or more. Yeah, it's it's one of the more treatable cancers, so I think he's like for the time being is fine. But 
vaccinate your kid. Yeah. Ooh. Truly, HPV, get that vaccination because you it's don't totally you know, preventable. It's totally preventable and people wouldn't be in this bullshit years later, you know? Yep. Okay, let's introduce ourselves. Oh, hello everyone. My name is Steph. My name is May, and I'm here to say Welcome to the <laughs> Drama Club today. <laughs> hey, there you go. Um, this is the podcast all about celebrity scandals, gossip, biographies, entertainment news, yeah, um, Twitter, Instagram, social media updates. I guess right. Vax- vaccinations, vaccinations, scat play. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want us to be known for that. That's fucking weird. I actually didn't know that term until you just said it. Oh. You know I know all the fetishes. Oh, shit, man. You got your degree in fetishes? I got, got, got a dictionary. I'm the fetish dictionary. Dr. Fetish. Oh, that would be a sick fucking Podcast name. Or just Do- name? Okay. <laughs> yeah, like if like Dr. Ruth should have been like Dr. Fetish, PhD. Yep, very true. I started uh, Handmaid's Tale today. Oh, okay. I haven't started it. And I saw that um, Black Mirror drop too. Oh, yeah? Watched the first episode? It was- God damn it. It was good. Okay, okay. In New York, the greatest welcome in the history of the city for the boy who flew to Paris alone. Today, I'm going to talk about Charles Lindbergh and the so-called crime of the century. For this, I put my tax dollars to work and watched an episode (laughs) of Nova on PBS. called who killed Lindbergh's baby oh i also did all the wikipedias of course and watched a ton of youtube documentaries on Lindbergh. so charles augustus Lindbergh was born on february 4th 1902 in the motor city motown 1902 yep yep he a baby what the fuck <laughs> he a baby the baby <laughs> so he was born in motown detroit michigan and little Lindy was super into anything with a motor and anything mechanical from the time he was a little tiny baby. Nice. He moved around a lot because his parents broke up when he was seven. So he he ended up going to over a dozen schools as a kid. You know, for how much they talk about how people never got divorced back in the day, I feel like everybody we talk about, their parents yes. got divorced back in the day. But there's like the the correlation right there that they all got scandals though. Yeah, it's like that's true it was so rare and then like all these divorced people have like these major ass scandals. Because once they were divorced, they were like, fuck it. Might as well yeah. just keep on being crazy. Right. Yep. Yeah, so it must have been pretty tumultuous for him though. Cause especially back then, imagine it was I'll never forget it. They said, you know, the the average person didn't leave didn't travel more than like five miles away from their house or something. Wow, that's crazy. And so this fool ended up going to 12 different school, over 12 different schools on East Coast, West Coast, Midwest, South, like fucking everywhere. He was just That's bouncing wild. around. He was like on, he was like on the fucking prairie trail and shit. Like- <laughs> <laughs> he, got, he got bit by a snake and yeah. then like. <laughs> <laughs> so, so our boy Chucky must have held it together enough because he enrolled at the College of Engineering at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1920. Nice. This must have made his parents pretty happy because his dad was a congressman and his mom was a chemistry teacher. So I'm sure they were pumped with little Chuck because he showed an interest in something respectable like engineering. Right. But by his sophomore year, Charles was not feeling school because he was really more 
all about getting down and dirty with the actual machines, you know, than being like sitting in a classroom. Right. And he ended up dropping out in 1922 to begin flight training. Whoa. But flight school is expensive. And I'm sure his parents weren't about to help him with this shit. So yeah, you're going to drop out of school. Now you want to support you. Yeah, exactly. So he did some odd jobs and took a handful of classes enough to get takeoff and landing down. And then he started. <laughs> <laughs> what? what did you learn in between, my dude? <laughs> Nothing. You just blacked out or what? <laughs> what? what the he did that thing that we've all done once or twice where you show up and they're like, you know, the syllabus says that attendance isn't mandatory. So he was like, okay, take off. Got you. Showed up for the midterm landing. Then yeah. he bounced. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway so he so he got the takeoff and the landing down and he started working with a stunt flying team to earn more money to complete his flight training so this fool took a job that required flight expertise to be able to afford lessons to learn how to fly oh my god <laughs> what a savage <laughs> the balls on this guy am i right uh for real okay he also did skydiving and wing walking what the fuck? In like 1920? <laughs> yes. This guy's crazy. fucking crazy. Yeah, so he's a crazy motherfucker. That shit's crazy. Now, Now, if somebody I knew was like, I'm going to do flight training, I'd be like, why? And then right. they're like also skydiving and doing crazy shit. And we're like, how many years into perfecting this shit? You know, I would want to skydive, but I would not want to mess up my hair. Jenny liked skydiving. Like sh she did it and immediately went back to do it again. Like she said she had never felt more alive. Would you ever want to do the indoor one? Oh, yeah, I'll do that one. Because that seems like you get all the, the feeling of it. You still yeah, mess up your hair, Yeah, pretty though. safe. Yeah. Yeah. My hair would be fine. Yours would not. Mine would be a fucking mess. <laughs> I would, then I could start Theranos. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I Actually, was laughing so hard when I'm like, we're talking shit about her makeup. Yeah. And I'm like, bitch, how about you take lunch? <laughs> Go to the Macy's counter and get your makeup checked out. Oh, my God. That was so funny. And then I thought about your 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 Macy's VIP. Oh yeah, hell yeah. I actually read an interesting article just yesterday. I wish I would have read it before I did that where it was talking about like who's allowed to look a mess and be a mess and uh -huh. it was like black women aren't allowed to do that cuz nope. you show up and they'll be like, "Oh, your hair is natural. That shit is unprofessional." Change That's that actually shit true. Stuff, you know? Yeah. But I was like, "Damn, white privilege rears its ugly head again." Yeah, I don't like white girls that look a mess too though. I'm like, what the fuck? They start to look like trailer trash. But they're allowed to get away with it to an extent that anybody else wouldn't. Oh, yeah. No. Black girls wouldn't even be able to get in the door. Right. Looking the way that fucking Lizzie Holmes did. Oh, God. So by 1923, Charles is 21 years old. And he has been in and around planes a lot, but hasn't flown solo yet. Mm. But he saw an airplane for sale for $500. Oh, my God. <laughs> But he completely fell in love with and he went to Georgia to buy it. There, someone who was buying an identical plane gave him a half hour crash course on how to fly it. And Chuck was like, dope, I got this. And he did his first solo flights above the field in Georgia where he bought the plane. Oh, my God. Fuck this guy. <laughs> I don't like this at all. I'm so nervous. You're see you're scared of this podcast now. <laughs> I knew it. I knew the day would come. Shut up, man. <laughs> oh god. So he stayed there for a week to get more practice time, and then he took off 140 miles west to Alabama, making 
uh, marking the first time he flew solo any significant distance. Mm-hmm. Chuck spent the rest of the year continuing to work as a stunt flyer under the name Daredevil Lindbergh. Oh, that's cool as fuck. I want that jacket. Yeah. You know, yeah. like that font from back then. Yeah. Hell yeah. So, but this time he was like the pilot. So he's, so he's moving up in the world. He's also seemingly crashing his plane left and right because I read about three or four. I read about three or four more crashes that he was in just that year. What? <laughs> in 1924, Chuck started what would be a year of military flight training, which thank goodness because this dude seems like he needs some fucking lessons. Right. Eight days before graduation in 1925, Charles had his most serious crash when he collided midair with another plane and had <gasps> to ditch his plane. What the fuck? Yeah. This is crazy. This guy has nine lives or what? Despite all this, he graduated first in his class. Shut the <laughs> hell up. Who else was in his class? That's what I'm saying. If, if this fuck? fucking clown graduated first. Oh, God. I'm low-key stressed about like any air travel that takes place before Mad Men time now. Oh, me too. <laughs> so now Charles was a second lieutenant in the Air Force Reserves. But there wasn't really anything going on at the time. It was, yeah, it's 1920. So it's like, we're out of World War One. Like, he was just kicking it, you know. Mm-hmm. So the army didn't really need him. And they were like, you can go back to doing whatever the fuck you were doing before. But he's still in the reserve. So he's still getting that paid. But they get paid, right? During the reserves or it's only when you actually get out there. They get paid not a lot, but they do. All right. So Lindy went back to being a stunt flyer. But now he was also a flight instructor. Jesus. In, in He was like, I'm going to show you guys how to, how to <laughs> land. I'm going to show you guys how to take off. And then the rest, you're on your own. In 1926, Chuck became a mailman. What the fuck? <laughs> what? What? Whoa, whoa, plot twist. <laughs> Once again, fuck my mailman forever, by the way. But <laughs> but but Charles had a he had a cool job though, because I guess he was a pilot he was like a uh he carried the the mail in an airplane. And I guess oh, there wasn't cool. like that many of them at that time. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I thought straight up he was like walking door to door. No, like hey yeah, like your mailman. Exactly. Yeah, right, yeah. No, he was flying the mail. And actually I read somewhere that that was one of the most dangerous jobs in the US at that time. Like they had like almost all of them were just dying. All to send your Aunt Sally a postcard. I know. Okay, so he crashed his mail plane a couple of times within the year and escaped serious injury on both occasions. So Teflon Chuck was just lucky as fuck and he was feeling himself. Right. All right, let's back up a little bit. Eight okay. years eight years earlier in 1919, the first transatlantic flight was completed from Newfoundland to Ireland, which was mm. cool and all. But from those two points, it actually isn't super far. It's only like 1900 miles. Okay. And also that flight was done by two dudes. So these guys could switch off flying or sleeping or navigating or whatever. So yeah, everyone was like, that's cute that you guys did that, but let's get to the real shit. So, Because <laughs> <What> the- <laughs> they just kind of like came and went, like no one really cared that that shit happened. Yeah. So shortly after those dudes did that, this French hotelier named Raymond Ortigue was like, I got 25 Gs for whoever does this from New York to Paris. Ooh. Which was almost double the distance at 3,600 miles. Because let's be honest, Ain't nobody trying to go from Newfoundland to Ireland. Like, yeah, what any- the fuck? <laughs> Who's taking that flight? 
for real. Anything you've got in one place, you've got in the other, which is what? Cows? In exactly. 1902 or whatever the yeah. fuck? <laughs> 1919. So anyway, this dude Raymond is like 25 G's, New York to Paris, Paris to New York. It doesn't matter. You've got five years starting now. So the five years come and go because nobody was trying to do that shit. Right. It was too dangerous. Then in like 1924, 1925, Raymond is like, come on, guys, let's fucking do this shit. Here's another five years. Now go. Yeah. And this time, hella people take it seriously. Literally the best flyer in the world. Renee- Who is this French asshole just playing with all these pilots? He's like, I know. He's like, <laughs> he's like, dance. <laughs> <laughs> so the best flyer in the world, Rene Fonck from France. Ooh who was the allied hero in world war one like he had uh more air kills than anybody else during that war he was like i'll do it and he crashed on takeoff oh shit (laughs) because these are all new planes and shit because no plane before could do it you know so right anyway so he crashed on takeoff he survived though oh okay two of the best u.s naval pilots crashed and were killed while testing their plane jeez and then a couple of french war heroes Charles Nugesser and Francois Collie were like, don't trip, we got this. And they took off from Paris, but they disappeared off the coast of Ireland. <gasps> oh, hell no. They barely even like got off away from Europe. They yeah. Couldn't do that shit. So this shit is getting ridiculous. People are straight up dying. This French had- billionaire's in his house like, ha, ha. <laughs> in frog legs. Yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, you'd have to be crazy to try this shit, but you know who's fucking crazy? My man Daredevil Lindbergh or whatever the yeah. fuck his name was. Uh, the mailman. <laughs> <laughs> you know who's fucking crazy? The mailman. <laughs> so in 1927, 25-year-old Chuck got a sponsor and spent over 10 grand commissioning a custom plane they called the Spirit of St. Louis. Aww. On Friday, May 20th, 1927, Chuck took off from New York solo to Paris. During the 33 and a half hour flight, Charles didn't have a radio or navigation equipment because he thought the plane couldn't afford the extra weight. How the fuck was he going to stay up that long? I know. And he said that he had been up to 24 hours before, just like getting ready and preparing and shit. So like, he was just straight up like, I'm going to be, they didn't have Red Bull back then. I know. And then you don't want to be, like, drinking anything anyway. I was thinking, like, maybe he took coffee. Like, no, you don't want to be. Yeah, there's no, there's no. Oh, well, I guess he could, like, you could pee. You can't poop, though. Yeah, that's true, though. Anyway, so even his seat was also basically, like, a a wicker lawn chair because he couldn't, he didn't want the weight because, obviously, too much weight, too much fuel, you're not going to make it on the fuel. What are you going to get horrible. out of this, dude? $5,000? It was 25 Gs. Oh, 25 Because he didn't really put anything out of his pocket. He had sponsors. I think yeah. he, he actually put two grand out of his pocket. So he's going to net so 23 dumb. grand. They will do shit like this just for notoriety. Yep, yep. Just for the fucking, just the flex. This was just yeah. trying to in- insta-flex that he fucking did it. Just so that next time you're at the club and see a bitch, a fine-ass bitch, you'll be like, hey, guess hey. what I did? New York to yeah. Paris, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway... All this precaution must have been worth it because he landed on May 21st in Paris and was greeted by a crowd of 150,000. Damn. Because once it like they realized, oh, he could he could get there. Like they started they started gathering around the airfield and they created the largest traffic jam in the history of Paris to get there. 
Wow. He said when he was getting close by, he saw the headlights and he was like, what is this? Like, he didn't know, like, where he was supposed to land because of all the headlights. Wow. And so he fucking made it. That's so pretty they, boss. they dragged him out of the cockpit and carried him for over half an hour, which sounds terrifying. That does. He probably shit on somebody. For <laughs> sure. <laughs> he fell asleep. I would yeah. fall asleep for sure. But this was like the most exciting thing that ever happened. Yeah, this is fucking amazing. This is revolutionary. This is landing on the moon, basically. Yeah, seriously. So before then, people would have to take ships from New York to Paris. And even that, like, yeah, they fucking die, would, eat yeah. bread, <laughs> eat bread, because <laughs> they run out of food, and then all they got is stale bread, and then they got to eat that, and then they run out of stale bread, and then they got to kill one of the weak kids <laughs> and eat that. Yeah, and you get like scurvy and shit because they yeah. didn't have like enough lemons in their diet or something. Yeah, fuck that. Vitamin C. Fuck that. I ain't ever going to Paris. <laughs> <laughs> Been there, done that. <laughs> so all right so that was fucking it charles Lindbergh was now the biggest star on the planet yeah the front page on the new york times just said Lindbergh does it in a huge <laughs> font <laughs> which is sick actually. yeah that's fucking real sick <laughs> <laughs> he got the nickname lucky lindy which he actually hated because he felt like it took away from like the work that he and like the other engineers did to prepare the plane and like just kind of chalked it up to luck but yeah Loki, he was lucky though. He was, yeah, it was partial luck. Yeah, because like it's better pilots than you had done it and or had tried it and failed. Right, and also people, he ended up he spent like ten grand on the plane. People had been spending like forty grand on the plane. It's crazy. And he just yeah, so it's there's a little bit of luck involved, of course. So. Lindy got his own fucking stamp, which Damn. must have been nuts for a mailman. Yeah, that's boss. President Coolidge presented him with the Congressional Medal of Honor. Damn. And then that was nuts, too, because Congress had to pass a whole ass resolution because it was only supposed to be for war heroes. Yeah. And they had to, like, pass a law just to let Lindy get it. It's like, you're a whole new breed of hero right here, dude. Yes. He is a hero. What else would it be? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, All right, I get it. <laughs> the president of France, Gaston Dumergue, yep, gave him a medal. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking golden frog leg and shit. <laughs> the French Foreign Office flew the American flag. It was fucking what? lit. That's sick. Back in the states, there were parades, and Lindy flew from Washington D- from Washington D.C. to New York in a day. When over 4 million people came just to catch a glimpse of him in both cities. That's awesome. Time Magazine named him their first man of the year. And at 25 years old, he remains the youngest ever. Pretty much there had never been a universally loved worldwide celebrity on this scale. And I don't think there has been ever since. He's like 98 Tom Hanks's minimum. (laughs) From then on, he cashed the fuck in and balled the fuck out. Hell yeah, dude. His autobiography made fucking bank. I bet. And during his book tour, he was seen by over 30 million Americans, which was one quarter of the population at the time. Holy shit. Yeah. He's also pretty much single-handedly sparked an interest in the aviation industry. So now people were throwing money at it and business was booming. Wow. So Lindy is rich as fuck, the most famous man on earth, and the face of a growing industry. That's amazing. So so there's only one thing missing. 
a lady, Lindy. Ooh. <laughs> he was like world's most eligible bachelor. He sure was. And he wasn't bad looking. Yeah. All the ladies were like trying to get at him for real. Ladies love Lucky Lindy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Chuck wrote in his autobiography that his quote, ideal romance was stable and long term with a woman with keen intellect, good health and strong genes. Experience in breeding animals on our farm taught me the importance of good hereditary of good heredity. Whoa, that's weird. So yeah, <laughs> fucking there, Hitler over here. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a lot to unpack there, and let's just leave it at our boy Chuck is problematic, and we'll get back to it later. Okay, stay tuned. <laughs> so in December, Lucky Lindy is still traveling the U.S. and Latin America, having parades and shit. When he meets the daughter of the U.S. ambassador to Mexico, Anne Morrow, in Mexico City. Anne had a keen intellect, good health, and strong genes. Okay. So he put a ring on it, and the couple married in 1929. They went on to have six children, which which Lindy only saw a few months a year, but insisted that Anne keep a log of all of their infractions, like if they got caught chewing gum. Okay. And he made Anne track all of the household expenses to the penny and would lose his mind if the books were off even by a penny. Ooh, that's some Heaven's Gate ass shit. Mm hmm. Anyway, so let's focus on 1932. Anne and Lindy had only one kid at that point, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. Uh huh. But Anne was pregnant with baby number two, John. On March 1st, 1932, 20-month-old Junior was taken from his second-floor room in the Lindbergh Country Home in East Amwell, New Jersey. Wow. A ransom note was left on the windowsill warning the Lindberghs not to involve the cops and asking for 50 grand to return the baby. Wow. Loki, they could have asked for more, I think. Yeah, 50 grand? That was probably a shit ton. It was a shit ton, but like this fool had millions at that point already. And also, Anne came from money, too, so she had money. Yeah. Okay, anyway. They asked for 50 grand to return the baby, and Junior must have been silenced or somehow otherwise rendered unconscious because no one in the house really heard anything. Lindy called the police and weirdly wouldn't let them read the ransom note or really handle the investigation the way that they wanted to. He was like, first of all, I'm motherfucking Charles Lindbergh. I'm in charge here. You guys are going to do what I say. And pretty much they let him because this is the most famous man in the world. Yeah. They end up finding a foldable ladder on the side of a road near the house that they determined was probably used to reach the second floor where the baby was. Also, foldable ladders weren't really a thing back then. So this was a custom homemade thing. And it was actually really cool because it sort of like it was like in three pieces and it collapsed into itself. Mm. So it was like whoever did it was fairly talented. Right. Anyway. So that that along with the note are pretty much the only two pieces of evidence they have. Okay. And Charles wasn't letting anybody see the note. Okay, that's good. So <laughs> idiot. So, so all the all the cops had was the ladder really to look at. <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, so the kidnapping is out in the press and the whole world is shook. Right. Cuz this is like the world's family. So they're like you better find our fucking baby, you know. Right. Whatever it takes. And there's this dude who's a big Lindy fan, and his name is Dr. Condon. And he takes out an ad in a newspaper saying that he'd be willing to act as an intermediary between the two parties. Like, he'd make the the drop for the money and the exchange or whatever. Uh-huh. Weirdly, Lindy's like, all right, cool, you could do it. 
And then like the the kidnapper ends up sending him this dude, Dr. Condon, a note and is like, all right, cool, you're gonna do it. Like you'll be the the intermediary. So they start communicating through this guy now. So the kidnappers end up telling him, Don't meet us at this cemetery. Bring the cash and we'll tell you where to find the kid. So the cops help Lindy get the cash together in gold certificates, which was some currency that was about to get pulled out of circulation anyway. So so tracking those bills would be easier because they'd catch people's eyes. But Lindy doesn't let the cops go to the drop location. Dr. Condon takes the cash to the cemetery, makes the drop, and the kidnapper does not reveal the location of the baby and just takes the fuck off into the night. Oh, my God. Which, I mean, if the cops would have, if he would have let the cops follow uh, Dr. Condon, they could have maybe followed him. I don't know. So the guy just disappears. Two weeks later, someone who is walking in the woods not too far from the Lindbergh house finds the remains of the Lindbergh baby. Oh, no. Upon inspection, it seems clear that he'd probably been there since the night he was taken. Oh, that's awful. The whole world. And the baby's so cute. He's like like a curly-headed little baby. Like the girl, he looks like a fucking cartoon of a baby. Like the Gerber baby with like little curls. The whole world mourned. And then the U.S., a lot of people refer to this moment as a loss of innocence, which reminds me of how people describe, like, the the Manson family murders at the ends of the 1960s. Yeah. Like, after after this, nothing was ever the same, and this became known as the crime of the century and described in newspapers from that time as the biggest story since the resurrection. Because it's like Charles was this Mm -hmm. hero that -hmm. everybody looked up to. And then it was his baby. And it's a baby. Right. Like the most yeah. innocent things that we love and protect, you know. And when the baby was born and Anne was pregnant and stuff, it was like everybody was Cute. like, this is our baby. Yeah. This is, like, you know. So when he was born, it was a big deal. That's and then really sad. there was always news real footage and pictures of him and drawings of him in newspapers. Like this is our baby. And he's, you know, look how he's growing up. Yeah. It yeah. was a whole last thing. Anyway. In the immediate aftermath of the crime, Congress passed the Lindbergh Law, making kidnapping a federal crime. Because, like, before that, I guess it was just like, oh, okay. A A slap on the wrist or what? (laughs) Jesus. Although this was the most high-profile case in history, it took two and a half years to find a suspect. Richard Hauptmann, a 34-year-old German immigrant, was arrested near his home in the South Bronx after paying for gas with one of the bills from the ransom money. The gas station owner who took the bill didn't think too much of the dude when he took the money. But what he was really worried about was since this money was taken taken out of circulation, he was worried that when he went to the bank that they wouldn't take it anymore. So he wrote down the license plate of this dude, Richard, just in case. Oh, wow. So anyway, when of course, when he takes it to the bank, they're like, oh, we're looking for these bills. And then he's like, oh, cool. I got the license plate number. And like yeah. that's how they found this fool. The cops searched Richard's house and found almost 14000 in the ransom bills. Wow. They also found Dr. Condon's phone number and address written on one of the walls in his closet. Ooh, that is scary. <laughs> yeah. And they found one of the planks in the floor of his attic matched perfectly one of the planks used to build the ladder. Oh, wow. And they found, like, plans in a notebook on how to build a ladder like this. God damn. <laughs> and they found pictures of the baby. <laughs> the baby. The baby. So, so the case was fairly open and shut 
Richard had also been in prison back in Germany for breaking into a house by using a ladder to get to the second floor. Oh, wow. And he'd caught a separate case for harassing a woman who was holding a baby. So, (laughs) you know, that's kind of a reach, but it just it just tells you that he don't give a fuck about babies. Basically, got a pattern. Yeah, the baby bandit. (laughs) Back in Germany, he had escaped prison, stowed away on a ship, and that's how he ended up in the U.S. in the first place. Oh shit! That's fucking really real. (laughs) He gave a fake name at Ellis Island because you know they couldn't. You could give like literally any name. They were gonna change that shit anyway. Yep. So if if you're me, you're thinking, all right, w- we got this guy, but is it all too perfect? It, yep. It's, it's kind of clean because yeah, where's, it's the, clean. It's open where's, shit. where's the rest of the money? There's no way he could have spent 35 grand of it over the course of like two and a half years. Plus, it makes sense that there were multiple people involved. It would have been hard to hold the ladder, subdue the baby, get in, get out by yourself right outside of a house full of people with nobody noticing. Also... It was super weird for the Lindberghs to be at the house on that day. It was a Tuesday and this was their weekend house. They never in their in the whole time that they owned this house were they ever there after a Sunday ever. And this was a Tuesday. Huh. The only reason they were there that day was because super last minute Lindy like took a speaking engagement. And so he was like, "Okay, we're going to stay till Monday. And then that morning, that Tuesday morning, he was like, you know, what? let's stay today. So there was no reason for anyone to know that they uh, that they were there. So there's the theory that they had some sort of accomplice that was maybe inside of the house. Wow. When the cops wanted to question one of the maids, she ran into another room and swallowed cyanide and was dead within minutes. What? Yeah. Oh, shit. And this wasn't even like, hey, you're a suspect. This was just like, hey, we got a couple questions. And she was like, nope. What the fuck? <laughs> Uh, it's like a terrorist organization. Right. And think about it. Why was Lindy so, Lindy so obsessed with controlling the investigation? But why would he want to kill his son? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Right. Well, Lindy was super into eugenics, which is the science of controlling breeding Ooh. in humans to only get the most desired genetic output, a.k.a. some Nazi shit. Yeah. Some Aryan shit, some white supremacist shit. Yeah. Lindy loved all of that shit. He was all about it. And, and Lindy Jr., well, he had some sort of physical abnormality. Uh-huh. Most likely rickets, which just makes it hard for you to walk. In the worst, in the most severe cases, it deforms your legs, but it didn't seem like baby, limber baby had that. So if he did have rickets, it was mild, but his pediatrician does note that he wasn't hitting those landmarks like when a baby's supposed to stand up on their own. and Right. He wasn't walking or anything. Okay. Oh, that's yeah. awful. Mm-hmm. So all of that wouldn't sit well with Lindy, who thought that he himself was genetically superior to everyone. And this would have proved otherwise. So maybe Lindy just wanted to discreetly send his baby away to an institution. Wow. And that actually wouldn't have been that crazy for a family of means to do at the time. Who was it that we were talking? It was like one of the Kennedy kids, Rose Rosemary, that they sent away. That's right. Yeah, she was very sick. Right. This right. is like it. It wouldn't have been weird for them to do that. Right. But considering this family, this particular family was under a microscope of the whole world. Mm-hmm. I don't think they could have done that because people would have been like, "Hey, where'd your baby go?" Yeah. 
you know, and especially the, their first baby, this baby where everybody's like, you know, so all hype. about him. Yeah. So maybe they just needed the kidnapping for for cover. Mm hmm. And maybe they were just trying to, you know, send him away to an institution or I don't know. It's possible. I, I like the theory that they were trying to do that and then some an accident happened. Maybe. Yeah. It, they didn't mean to kill the baby, but the baby ended up dead. Yeah. Uh, and when they when they studied the the baby's skull, the injuries do. It does seem like maybe they dropped him. Oh, no. So the theory is that they could have dropped him from the second floor while they were trying to get down the ladder. Oh, no. And then he died right there. And that's why they had to ditch the baby and the ladder and everything and just like leave. Yeah. Anyway, who knows? I don't know what to think. Mm -hmm. uh, but Richard Houtman was eventually found guilty and executed for the crime. Wow. Although modern analysis has concluded that Richard most likely didn't write the ransom notes. So there's that. Ooh. For sure, Richard Richard is probably involved. Richard most likely has accomplices that we don't know about. That made, but, I'll tell you one. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So, uh, yeah, for I guess the biggest question is whether Lindbergh or anyone in that family was involved. But. Right. Anyway, after all this, the Lindberghs moved to Europe to try to escape the public eye. Mm. There, Lindy became super friendly with the Nazis. Mm. And urged the U.S. not to enter World War II because they had no business fighting with other superior whites. Oh, and wow. Mm -hmm. He eventually came back to the States where he died in 1974 at the age of 72 in Hawaii. Wow. What a life. Fun fact. Bloop. Secret family alert. Ooh. ooh. Yup. Because he could fly and shit. <laughs> Lindy had not one, not two, but three. <gasps> Secret families? Secret families in Germany. No way. Because remember, he would only see his kids a few months at a time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so he had fathered seven children there since 1957. Plus his original six. Mm -hmm. Damn. Well, he was all about that eugenics shit, so he wanted to get his, his, his genetics out, out there. there. Yeah. That's nasty. His other families knew him by the name... Caro Kent. <gasps> Damn, he was getting other families not even using the Lindbergh name. That's low key yeah. impressive. <laughs> and he he had uh, they had no idea Lindy was their dad. I think the moms did. Mm -hmm. They must have because well they you were know, fucking him. Well, you could fuck someone and not know their name. You know, yeah, but, but not he's the so most famous. famous. Come yeah, on. the kids maybe by that time he wasn't that famous anymore. You know, yeah, by fifty seven. Yeah, but. The, and actually, one of the moms was like his private secretary. So she oh, for wow. sure knew. Yeah. A and the other two were sisters. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, so the kids had no idea that Lindy was their dad until one of the daughters read a story about him in a magazine in the 80s. Oh, wow. And, and then she like saw his picture and then she started doing some digging. And yeah, she That's found crazy. out that was their dad. And. Ten days before Lindy died, he sent a letter to the three of the moms in Germany and begged them never to let the secret out. Wow. But, you know, ten years later, the kids figured it out. And yeah. then 20 years later, in 03, they started getting genetic testing. I mean, not genetic, uh, DNA testing. And then they proved it. Wow. Yeah. That's so. fucking crazy. Story of the crime of the century. Ooh. Good job, man. 
that brought us back in time. <laughs> what year did he die? 1970-whatever? 74. Okay. So the stories do interlap a little bit. Interlap? Interlope. Overlap. Overlap. <laughs> <laughs> did you say interlope? <laughs> interlap and interlope. <laughs> Intertwine. If if you guys don't have immigrant parents, that's my favorite thing about having immigrant parents. They say some like crazy shit sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> that shit is funny. Like one was telling me that my dad was trying to book a a tea time for them on the yeah. computer yesterday, and then he was like, "Qué mierda con esta computadora." Me dijeron que tenía muchos megabytes. <laughs> oh yeah. You want to take a trip on a mega bus? <laughs> Like he was like, porque está tan, tan despacito esta madre si tiene muchas mega bikes. <laughs> oh. All right, all right. Joseph Perone, Bronx taxi driver who delivered the ransom note, looked directly at Hauptman and said, "That is the man." My turn. I'm gonna okay. do the story of Michael Hutchins. Yes, he's fine, huh? Yeah, he is pretty fine. Uh, Michael Hutchins was the lead singer of the band In Excess. For those of you who don't know, mm-hmm. he was born on January 22nd, 1960. That's why I said overlopes a little bit with that story. <laughs> <laughs> he was born in Sydney, Australia. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. But it makes sense. After I thought, after I found that out, then I was looking at him. I was like, oh, yeah, you are Australian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he has, uh, he has Heath Ledger vibes. Yeah. He's curly hair and stuff. He totally yeah. does. Also kind of reminds me of Gavin Rossdale. Yes. Yeah. They but got Gavin, that same sort of curly hair. Yeah. Same kind of vibe. Yeah. Uh, Michael's dad was a businessman and because of his work, the family moved around a lot and he lived in Hong Kong for some time. Oh, dope. And Michael went to school in Hong Kong where he was a really good swimmer, but he ended up breaking his arm. And so he started focusing on poetry and music, which were his other two hobbies. Oh, he fancy. Yeah. The fam then moved back to Sydney when he was 12 and he went to high school out there and he met Andrew Ferris, who was a keyboard player, and the both of them started jamming in the garage together. Okay. At this time, Ferris had a band called Dr. Dolphin. Oh, I hate that name. And he convinced Michael to be the lead singer. I know. What year is this? Nine. Uh, I don't know. They were They're like little teenagers. 12 oh, yeah okay. so 1972 Ooh, the year that Lindbergh died <laughs> did you ever hear about that lady who it's like a famous story that she told she was like a dolphin scientist and she talks about how she used to like jack the dolphin off and shit like she had like what she had like a relationship with this particular dolphin oh shit yeah Ooh, it, that's scary it is a whole ass thing that's rough <laughs> I think <laughs> I, I think there's like a this American life on it or something I bet. Fuck. If there isn't, there needs to be. <laughs> Low key, I'm gonna do that from after dinner to life next week. <laughs> so, um, Michael's parents were going through a hard time early in his high school while he was in high school, and they ended up divorcing when he was 15. Okay. Then in 1977, when he was 17, Andrew formed a new band called the Ferris Brothers with his brothers, obviously. Mm-hmm. And he convinced Michael to come in as vocalist again. And they started doing some gigs around town. They started performing around Sydney and recorded a set of demos. The Ferris Brothers supported hard rockers on the pub rock circuit and renamed themselves to In Excess in 1979. That's a good ass name. 
that's the best ass name. This is like when Heaven's Gate went through all those stupid yes. ass names. And then they landed on Heaven's Gate and they were like, and I was like, yep. Yo. They put those sneakers on and they were it. like, ooh. Congratulations. Michael Hutchins put, put on like a leather jacket with no shirt. And we we're like, we ooh. got this, baby. Their first performance under this name was at the Ocean View Hotel in Sydney. Ooh. In May 1980, they recorded a single named Simple Simon and dropped their debut album, just self-titled, mm -hmm. in October 1980. The CD was a fucking bop, hey. and the first song, Just Keep Walking, ended up being a top 40 hit in on the Australian charts. Okay, so they're huge in Australia. They're on, they're on some Kylie Minogue shit. Got it. Yep, pretty much like right off the bat, they're huge. Okay. Since Michael was the lead singer, he kind of became the spokesperson for the band and he was co-writing all of the songs with Andrew Ferris. Mm -hmm. So Michael and Andrew were really like the two that were, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. noticeable. The band got to work on their second album right away and started recording Underneath the Colors. Ooh. Meanwhile, Michael was getting a ton of attention for his style on stage. He was super sexual but demure. He was fine as fuck. Mm -hmm. And he just had a really great overall rock frontman look. Hell yeah. And you know. Like he's too cool, right? Once you get a frontman like that, it's money, baby. Like, Yeah, like you made yeah. it. You found your Sid Vicious. Mm -hmm. Like you guys are going to fucking make it to the tippity top. Yep. He has great hair. It's like, and the hair is like 80% of it's it. so quintessential. Dave Simpson of The Guardian wrote, quote, Watching Hutchins, his hair flailing, crotch thrusting, a mischievous smile forever creeping across his leathery face. Yes. I realized that there was a man born to be on stage, living and loving every minute, an explosion of sexual energy. Ooh. That's like perfect. Yeah. That's like exactly how you should yeah. think of Michael. And also think about the time before this, your front men were not like masculine like that. Not like mm. sexual like that. No, not in this way. Yeah. Yeah. Your closest would maybe be like a Freddie Mercury, actually. Yeah. And even then, Freddie's not like, Freddie's sexual, but not like, I don't know. Michael's got a different kind of vibe. Yeah. It's a vibe. Because like, I don't know. I don't know if women want to fuck Freddie Mercury. Exactly. But yeah, you definitely want to fuck Michael fuck Hutchins. Michael Hutchins. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. So he was wild. He was always involved in public brawls and he would like use drugs out in the open and shit. So the media loved portraying him as this hard partying rocker. Ooh. Plus, he was romantically linked to a bunch of le leading ladies once he became famous, <gasps> including Kylie fucking Minogue. Oh, queen. Yeah. Helena Christensen, which is a fucking gorgeous yeah. supermodel. And Belinda Carlisle, the lead, wow. lead singer of the Go-Go. So he was like dating Famous chick after yeah. famous chick. Like, all of his relationships were high profile. Right. And these are all, like, the baddest bitches, too. Yeah. You got Kylie Minogue on yeah. your arm? Ooh. Dude. In Excess's second and third albums were super successful, and the band won seven awards at the Countdown Music Awards, which is a thing in Australia, mm -hmm. including Best Songwriters for Michael and Andrew and Most Popular Male for Michael. So he's at the top of his game. But were they popular outside of Australia? Not at this time. Okay. In 1986, is Belinda Carlisle Australian? I don't know. Oh, okay, maybe not. In 1986, Michael landed a role in a movie called Dogs in Space, so he's <laughs> getting a little bit of crossover fame. Okay. Like that's when you know you're really starting to get, you know, hella famous yeah, as yeah. a musician. The band took a break uh, with writing music, but they went on tour in Australia, 
and they were releasing singles but no full-blown albums until their next studio album which catapulted them into worldwide (gasps) popularity kick Mm -hmm. the hit number one singles include need you tonight new sensation never tear us apart and the devil inside yeah this album hit number one in Australia, number three in the U.S., and number nine in the U.K. Wow. And their most famous is probably the song Need You Tonight, which mm-hmm. is a fucking bop. Yep. That shit slaps. That shit it's a goes. jam. Billboard said, quote, it's not lyrically complex, but it's Michael's performance. Whisper, mm-hmm. gently drawing back with the incredible lust of a tiger. Hunting <laughs> in the night that makes the song sexy and funky. And the video, too, I think. Yeah, it's fucking good. Yeah. Could you imagine like in the US, they probably never heard of In Excess before. Right. And then this is like the, the song and video that they see. You're like, who is this? Yeah, exactly. It's like fully formed because they had had time to like grow, you know? So, oh exactly. God, yeah. The band swept the 1988 MTV Music Awards with the video and song winning in five different categories. Wow. Michael did some more side solo stuff around this time and dropped a self-titled solo album. So he's out here working, you know, he's like really uh-huh. uh, making his money. You know, now that I think about it, Michael was probably doing the the George Michael sort of faith era before George Michael. For sure. Like he had that look down and he had that sort of sexuality thing going. Yep, totally. In 1990, NXS released X, which dropped two more international hits, Suicide Blonde mm-hmm. and Disappear. Fun fact. Oop. Uh, Michael and Andrew Ferris wrote the song Suicide Blonde after Kylie Minogue <laughs> said that her look during the 1989 film The Delinquents was kind of like a suicide blonde. Hey. She's wearing a platinum blonde wig. Hell yeah. That's awesome. In Excess released two more albums with less commercial success. And around this time, they were getting tired of touring, tired of writing. And a few of the members had gotten married and had some kids. Mm-hmm. So they took some time off to be with their families while Michael remained in the public eye because of all of his high-profile romances and antics. Oh, yeah. So he kept working on some more stuff titled solo stuff and writing music for other artists in the mid-90s. Uh-huh. In August 1992, while Michael was dating Helena Christensen, they were out in the streets after a night of drinking when a taxi started driving up towards them without moving. What? Well, Michael, being the egomaniac tough guy that he was, also wouldn't move. So the taxi driver stopped, got out of the car, and assaulted him, causing Michael to fall backwards and hit his head on the road. No. Oh, my God. Michael ended up suffering a fractured skull, but he refused to seek immediate medical attention. Wow. Okay. He waited days before seeing a doctor, and by the time he went, his fractured skull was unable to heal completely and left him with basic complete loss of the sense of smell what and almost all loss of the sense of taste oh my god Michael. so this led yeah why would you so do this that because he's a fucking rock star like he thinks he's fucking you know yeah so this led michael to suffer with hella depression and increased Whoa. aggression and i didn't mention this earlier but every thing that i see i've been watching like interviews and i there's a behind the music on on him mm-hmm. and when people talk about him they say that he was always kind of depressed and mm-hmm. he was always somebody who was clinging on to any sort of love he got like from friends and from partners mm-hmm. because his parents broke up so early on and because he moved around a lot as a child i think mm-hmm. he was always feeling lonely yeah okay 
So after this happened, his aggression kind of increased and he was hospitalized for two weeks. And Andrew says that he started being way more aggressive toward the rest of the band members. He threatened to kill some of them during the recording of one of their albums. He would like try to knock them out and stuff like he would try to fight with them all the time. And this is all is it's like secondary to the depression or is it secondary to the like to the head injury itself? I think it's both. You know, yeah. I think I think he was already somebody who was prone to getting depressed. Then he had the head injury and he just fell into like deeper depression. Yeah. So he's just fucking angry. Oh, God. So then in the mid 1990s, Michael met and began dating a woman by the name of Paula Yates. Mm-hmm. Paula was a, a lot of snake emojis right around. here. Oh, OK. I'm, I'm on edge TV. now. Shit. Yeah. Fuck her. OK. <laughs> Paula was a TV presenter and she worked on two pretty famous British programs called The Tube and The Big Breakfast. Mm-hmm. And so she focused on like music journalism. Okay. But we'll back up a little bit because before meeting Michael, Paula met and began dating Bob Geldof, oh. who is known for being in the band The Boomtown Rats and for later being the organizer of the uber famous concert. Live Aid, right? Yeah, yeah. Live Aid. And also the father of Peaches. <laughs> yes. And then, yeah, we'll get to that. Well, they dated for a long time and got married and they had three daughters, Fifi, Peaches, Mm -hmm. and Pixie. Allegedly, Paula became obsessed with the Boontown Rats after seeing them in concert and she started following them around on tour, which is how she met Bob and they linked up. Okay. So she's married to Bob. She has three daughters. Mm -hmm. Then she meets Michael in 1985 for an interview on that show, The Big Breakfast. Mm -hmm. And this interview is still on YouTube. So the concept of The Big Breakfast is like she brings these musicians into bed with her to have breakfast in bed and she's like interviewing them that's kind of cute They're just laying down but on michael's episode you could tell like she has her leg on him and she even says like this is the first one of my guests i've ever wanted to throw my leg over oh and like then my like michael like they have a you can see the connection okay like, right away they have chemistry all right so history kind of repeats itself paula was instantly attracted to michael Andrew allegedly says that she says, I will have him or something like at right after meeting him. And she started showing up at NXX shows everywhere for the next few years, trying to trap her man. Okay. Putting in work. Yeah. She would even bring her daughters along <laughs> like to go see their show. Call him daddy now. <laughs> <laughs> then in 1995, so 10 years later, uh-huh. she and Michael officially shacked up. Okay. The press outed their weak attempts at trying to keep the affair private and Paula officially separated from Bob. Oh, media was all over this affair and relationship. And Michael's aggressiveness was always on display with him assaulting photographers and yelling at the paps and shit. Uh, Okay. then Paula and Bob's divorce led to a super bitter custody battle over their daughters. Mm. The divorce was finalized pretty quickly in May 1996 because in July 1996, Paula gave birth to Michael's baby. Damn. Heavenly Tiger Lily Hutchins. Oh, the, you're doing the most with that. <laughs> That's a name. There's another name. In there. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's Heavenly. I think it's Harani. H-I-R-A-A-N-I. Oh, that's pretty though. Heavenly Harani. Yeah, Tiger Lily Lily yeah. Hutchins. <laughs> that's too much. Come on. In September, so I think that their divorce was done super quick because you know you can't be married to. I mean, you can, but basically, if you're married to someone and you have a baby, that person oh. legally has father's rights. Right. So if you're pregnant by someone else, you want to do the divorce as fast as possible. Yeah. 
In September 1996, Michael and Paula's nanny found some heroin <gasps> in a shoebox under their bed, and she alerted the authorities since there was a Kids, toddler in the yeah. house. Oh, good for you. Good for her. Yeah, good for you, girl. Michael and Paula were both arrested, but the charges were later dropped due to lack of evidence. I wonder, because I feel like if I saw some heroin, I would not know what it was. I'd be like, um, Pulp Fiction. Yeah. I would be like, oh, this is this is cocaine, right? Right. Like, yeah, I don't know. Is there a consistency difference or something? I read an article recently of someone who was like trying to figure out if this was cocaine or not. And they said like they put it looks sketchy like that. So they put mm -hmm. they put it on their gums and it didn't oh, that's smart. numb it. So they were like, oh, this is not cocaine. Yo. What if it's ashes, though? And then you have these ashes on your fucking gums. That's weird. <laughs> that's a vibe. <laughs> <laughs> that's what, I'm going to put the. I'm going to put that in my will. I want my friends to gum my ashes. <laughs> Fuck you. I'm not doing that shit. <laughs> so then In Excess went on a world tour for their 1997 album, Elegantly Wasted. So Michael's with Paula. They got a baby. Paula's divorced. And she's in a bitter custody battle. Yeah. Paula and the baby, Tiger Lily, planned to visit Michael while on this world tour. And she planned on bringing her other three daughters. But Bob immediately took legal action to prevent the visit oh because also bob doesn't want because they're messy obviously there's there's drugs yeah yeah so michael was super upset about paula not being able to come visit with the kids oh. and he went out partying on november 24th sorry november 21st with his friend kim who they is drank kim right and it's spelled with a y k y m oh. nope that's a stink emoji right there too yep they drank a shit ton and she left Michael in his room like really late at night. Paula said that she called Michael and told him about the girl's custody hearings and the fact that she wasn't going to be able to go visit him as previously intended. Mm -hmm. According to Paula, Michael said he was frightened and couldn't stand a minute more without the baby, that he was terribly upset and that he said, quote, I don't know how I'll live without seeing Tiger. Okay. Which is their baby. Paula said Michael told her he was going to call Bob in order to get the girls to be able to come see him. Bob's statement to police indicates that he did receive a call from Michael who was hectoring, abusive, and threatening during their conversation. The occupant in the hotel room next to Michael also said that they heard a very loud, angry voice swearing at about 5 a.m. on November 22nd. In what world do you, like, you're like, I'm going to call him. I'm going to convince him. And the way I'm going to convince him is I'm going to berate the shit out of him. The same guy who hits his head on pavement and is like, I don't need to go to yeah. the doctor, you know. At 9.54 a.m. on November 22nd, Michael called and spoke to his former girlfriend, Michelle Benet. According to Michelle, Michael was crying, upset and begging to see her. She arrived at his hotel room at 10.40 a.m. Mm -hmm. She knocked and nobody answered, so she ended up leaving. The maid then came into the hotel room at 11.50 a.m. and discovered Michael's body kneeling <gasps> while facing the door. He had used a belt to hang himself and he was 37 years old. Holy shit. On February 6th, 1998, after an autopsy and inquest, the coroner ruled death by suicide while under the influence of alcohol and drugs. In his blood, they found alcohol, Prozac, cocaine, and other prescription medication. There were talks around the time about whether or not this was an accidental death because there had been no suicide note. Mm -hmm. 
but everything basically got thrown out because of the other evidence showing his willingness to end his life like like i think they had seen that like he tried to set it up in one part of the room and then he ended up doing it in this other part of the room like it's definitely not something that i think he was planning on doing that night like like Mm -hmm. you know like he hadn't left a note and stuff usually i think it's something people take more planning into account but Uh it's definitely something he intended he wanted to end his life and what's so scary is that it seems like he just snowballed yeah he did he was just in distress and then the distress just kind of overcame him and alone alone yeah in a very very quick but that's fucking scary really scary Paula went into severe depression following Michael's death. Allegedly, she refused for a long time to believe that he had committed suicide. She kept begging them to keep doing other investigations, and she ended up having to get some psychiatric treatment. On November 27, 1997, Michael's funeral was held in Sydney. His casket was carried out by the other members of In Excess and his younger brother. Several In Excess songs were played at the funeral, Michael's younger brother claimed that the day before the burial, Paula went to go see Michael's body and she put a gram of heroin into his pocket before he was cremated. Well, that's something. Yeah. I don't know how to feel about that. Right? Paula spiraled without Michael and she attempted to commit suicide in June 1998. At that time, Bob then won full custody of their three children. Well, what about the other baby? She's still, she's Paula's child. But someone help her. (laughs) (laughs) paula yates accidentally overdosed on heroin and died on september 17th 2000 holy shit so two years after um michael yeah she was 41 years old her body was found lifeless by michael's daughter tiger lily who was only four years old at the time oh my god Uh... bob petitioned the court to adopt tiger lily after (gasps) paula died so that she could grow up with her three half sisters. Mm-hmm. Michael's sister tried to intervene to have Tiger Lily come live with her in California, but Bob ended up winning and he was granted formal adoption of Tiger Lily in 2007. Wow. He also petitioned the courts to change her name to Geldof, which Michael's mom and sister both opposed, uh-huh. but they ended she ended up adding it. So oh. it's hev- Heavenly Tiger Lily Hutchins Geldof. Yeah, fuck now. it. At that point, you just got like a million yeah. names. Just fuck it, add it. Yeah. Why not? Throw yeah. another one on there, girl. Bob Geldof seems just like a good-ass dude. A real good-ass dude, right? Yeah. I, I didn't look at his full-blown biography. Mm-hmm. There, were, I did see something that said, like, I think there is like some mini scandal in I his pocket. I think so, pocket. too. In the 80s? I think so, yeah. But, I mean, in terms of father, like, mm-hmm. he's top-notch he even like i think ended up becoming a huge advocate for father's rights because he had a lot of problems with the courts just because paula was the mom which is a very antiquated point of view in terms of custody that just mothers are you know allowed to get custody Mm -hmm. and a lot of the things he always brought up was like she's a fucking drug addict like he's like let me take care of the babies you know right so bob ended up raising the four girls And his eldest daughter with Paula Peaches became a model and column writer for Elle in the UK. She also wrote and presented her own documentary TV program around about fashion. Mm -hmm. She was 11 years old when Paula had died of the heroin overdose. Then on April 7th, 2014, Peaches was found dead of a drug overdose at the age of 25. Man, RIP. Yeah. You knew about that already? Yeah, I knew about Peaches. 
I didn't know about her at all. Because Peaches used to run with like Amy and shit. Yeah, she was super cool in the UK because she had her fashion show when she was like 14 yeah, or something. She was a super it girl. Look at the people she's running around with. She was like yeah. around like your Kate Mosses and shit. Oh, yeah. Like all the supermodels, all the rock stars. She was like, yeah. you know. That's cool. R.I.P. After Michael's death, NXS continued recording with really limited success until 2012 when they officially hung up the mm. what? Mic? The mic. <laughs> hung up the leather jacket. Yeah. They've sold over 30 million albums in the U.S. alone, and they're the third highest selling Australian Damn. music act behind ACDC and the Bee Gees. Oh, ACDC is Australian? Yeah. Oh, my God. You know who they should get to be their front man? <laughs> Gavin, Gavin Rosdale. Rosdale. Yeah. 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 That would help both of them. Yeah. <laughs> That's the story of Michael Hutchins. Oh, R.I.P. R.I.P. they should have played that at his funeral i'm sure they did yeah right (laughs) they were i saw like uh clips of it like people were singing like their songs as ballads and stuff like hella like 90s you know like the sesame street like the jim henson funeral if you guys want to cry that's some shit watch that shit (laughs) don't cry (laughs) well guys that's the drama club. That's the drama for today. Yeah, it had highs, it had lows, it had hair on. <laughs> it had babies and planes. <laughs> and peaches. <laughs> Hit us up on Instagram and Twitter at Drama Club Pod. Hit us up on the website dramaclubpod.com and at the Gmail dramaclubpod at gmail.com. On the hotline, 505-539-0556 at our P.O. Box, P.O. Box number 27433, L-A-C-A-90027. Tune in Monday. All right, goodbye. Bye. However, whatever with your helmet.